0: This is Word and the Wild, a one-year Bible adventure with friends. My name is Owen, and once again, this week, I am your host and your guide, as together we are on a 12-month journey as a podcast plus community where we read the Bible for ourselves, but not by ourselves. This is week seven, and my friend, we are officially on a roll this week. We talk about Moses and the Israelites, They're hard at work putting together that tabernacle in the wilderness to create space to meet with God, and God embeds some dramatic tension deep into the story. All that's ahead, so let's jump into it. Big hello and welcome to you. And a special welcome to all our Word and the Wild Plus community members. It's their support of this nonprofit endeavor that makes space for all of us here on this Bible reading adventure. We are having a blast inside the community. Last week, we got into some spicy QA. <laughs> I'll be honest, it was an adventure. Some of the questions included things like why does God in Exodus seem different from God in the New Testament? Uh, what does it mean to misuse God's name? And why does God seem to condone adultery and mistreatment of slaves in Exodus? So if those are conversations you would like to jump into, there is space for you. You can become a Word and the Wild Plus community member. Get all the details in the show notes for this episode of the podcast, or check it out at wordandthewild.com. After all the epic action scenes of the Exodus, we are now in a part of the movie where tension and mystery are slowly heating up to a simmer in the desert. Moses and the Israelites find themselves in some close encounters with God, and he's that God who shakes the mountain. So let's jump in with a look back at what we saw in the movie this week. So we are here in week seven, where we are continuing to look at the Bible like a movie and watch the story unfold. And and in a great story, you're going to have tension. And that's some of what we saw from God this week. If we look back at who God is, our main character, what we saw from him this week, if I had to pick one word for it, that word I would pick would be complexity. <laughs> but complexity is not a bad thing when you're talking about a story. I mean, in the world of storytelling, you want that complexity. You need some dramatic tension. All right. Now, so, for example, let me tell you, think about think about, your you know, a favorite movie that you love or maybe your favorite, uh, you know, maybe a TV show. OK, and, and in those Kind of movies or TV shows, you've got three kinds of characters. All right, you've got extras, you have simple characters, and you have complex characters. All right, now I'm kind of a nerd on this stuff, so indulge me a little bit. Think about these kind of characters first. Extras, you know, these are people who are just milling around in the background. Uh, you know that they filling up coffee shops and sidewalks out there on the set. If it weren't for them, the set would feel empty. It would be weird. It'd be like an apocalypse movie <laughs> with nobody out and about. You got to have extras, but as individuals, extras, they don't add anything to the story other than than filling up the space and making it feel alive. You got to have them, but they don't add much to the story. Okay, then you have simple characters. These are two-dimensional characters that are role players in the story. Their, their motivations are simple. their emotions are simple. A, a simple character is the the fun loving roommate who likes to party right? and then that's all they do. It's the the slacker coworker character or the jealous girlfriend character. I don't know you know like they're, whatever they show up in the scene, they always bring that same energy. The same desires, if they're a funny character, they're always funny. If they're a creepy character, they're always creepy. If they're an angry character, they're always angry. They, they never surprise you. They just are who they are forever in the story. And then there are the complex characters. These are the characters that keep things interesting. They've got a range of emotions they often appear contradictory at times. They, they they give conflict and tension inside the story because they've got goals and hopes and dreams and desires. In fact, without complex characters, at least one complex character in a movie or a story, you, you don't really have a story at all. They are the characters who move the the whole story forward they're the ones with the story arc uh they they are the ones who have a beginning where they have hopes and dreams where they have a middle that's a journey full of obstacles and have an ending with some kind of an outcome whether it's a a happy ending or a sad ending a, a comedy or a tragedy well when you think about characters in the story in our story that we're following this year, our Bible adventure, I mean, like it or not, God is a complex character in our story. And that complexity, well, he introduces some tension. And, and that's it's just how it is. Now, nowhere in this story so far has that tension been more clear then at the end of what we read last week. Um, in the aftermath of that infamous golden calf incident, <laughs> oh man, all-time great story, all-time sad story, but it's where you've got the Israelites, they've broken their covenant promise to God already, like three pages later. You got Aaron, who's, you know, unfortunately threw a bunch of gold into a fire and this, you know, calf idol he magically popped out. <laughs> Hashtag sarcasm. And then Moses, you got him smashing up the stone tablets that God had written on. All of that's going on. And then in the aftermath of all of that, God invited Moses to once again encounter him up on the mountain. And in this encounter, God introduces a massive tension into the story. It's in Exodus 34 that that it shows us what happened. It goes like this. It says, "Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, that's Moses, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, "Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy." I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations." That's verses 5, 6, and 7 there in Exodus 34. And you can just feel the tension in the scene. Uh, To Moses and a whole people who have just broken the first two points in that covenant relationship with him, commandment number one, commandment number two, at least if not more, God does something we have not seen him do before in this story he brings his physical presence next to Moses right there on top of that mountain. And as he does, God not only shows us a peek at his physical presence, but he reveals something deep and mysterious about himself that plants this grinding tension right in the very middle of the story. And because it's a tension that's embedded in the very middle of God's personality himself. It's the tension between compassion and accountability. Here, in just a few dozen words, God shows us himself. He is Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He lavishes this love and forgiveness on people with a force that reverberates through generations and millennia. I mean, wow. Amazing. I love that. And yet, and yet, pair that with the fact that he also does not ignore or excuse guilt. His justice in the face of sin extends downstream to the third and fourth generations it's clear that god leads with compassion it's the very first word that he uses to describe himself and his motivation he is as he said the compassionate and gracious god and the love that he shows echoes down for a thousand generations but at the same time he holds everyone accountable too. And that accountability isn't quite as fierce as his compassion in some ways. That accountability, when it hits down, it, it, it goes downstream for, for a few generations, three or four. But but that tension is there. And in many ways, these these two sides of God's personality, of God's sense of justice, are like the electromagnet that spins to provide energy for this whole story. Compassion and accountability. This tension is real. You feel it, and it's it's here to stay. And honestly, that, that might bother you. It, it sometimes bothers me. But when you don't let God be the main character of the story, then His complexity can get under your skin, and you find yourself... You wanting to figure God out? You want to put Him as a as a simple character in the story. You want Him to be one of those character actors where He's always the way He is. You know, the funny guy is funny, the the crazy girl's crazy. I mean, whatever. But God doesn't operate like that. So you find yourself you want to figure Him out instead of just enjoying the ride. With God, and you find yourself asking questions like, What does God want? How do I make God happy? How do I get God on my side? And instead, you want to be asking better, more helpful questions like, Who is this God? What is He like? What does He want to see happen? Where is His story taking us? Those are the questions, because God is a complex character, and this story, this is His story. Now as we look ahead in the story for this coming week, we're going to continue to see Moses and the people carrying out God's very detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. All the way back in Exodus 25, this was last week, God explains that the reason for this portable, sacred space, this this sacred tent, and he says it's uh, he wants to have the people of Israel build it for him because he wants, and this is a quote, he wants a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. In other words, live among the people. And as we watch the people get to work this week, First of all, we can allow ourselves some time just to marvel at the detail, lavishness, and quality of this very unique construction project. Never been one quite like it. I mean, creating a place to meet with God is no small feat. It takes artistry, skill, uh, sacrifice to make it happen. But we can also take some time this week to feel a sense of awe about what it all means, not only for the Israelites, but for us too, because that is the question after all, right? I mean, bottom line, the the question is, how does all of this relate to us? What, What am I supposed to do with all this information about the tabernacle, the furniture inside of it, and all of this detail? Well, to answer that question, you really got to go back to those 10 commandments that we saw in Exodus chapter 20, again from this last week we read, and the backstory for those commandments that we saw in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, remember, God explains why he brought the Israelites out of Egypt in the first place and what he wants for their future. And you'll remember that after that two month long trek out of Egypt, God led the people to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, this right here, I'm about to read to you, the very first thing God said at Mount Sinai, okay? Listen to this and pick up on these key themes. It says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. That's all the people he brought out of Egypt. This is what God wants Moses to say to them on his behalf. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19 verses 3 through 6. Bottom line, God has brought the people to Sinai to enter into a covenant with them, a binding lateral agreement between the two parties. Why? Because God wants the Israelites to have a special relationship with him. And that special relationship involves them being a kingdom of priests for god among all the people of the earth now when you think priests don't think people dressed in black with the white collars you know like catholic priest kind of thing think more about aaron and his descendants we've been reading about aaron's role as a priest is to provide a way to establish and maintain a relationship with God for all the people. It's to help the people know who God is, to understand how to establish a friendship with God, and how to live with God. That's what priests do. Now, God's heart is for the Israelites to be an entire nation of people who collectively form the access point for God to the world. The Israelites are to be established in the land promised to Abraham to help the world know God, establish friendship with God, to live life with God. In other words, to be a a kingdom, a nation of priests. Now, what do the people of Israel need to do to hold up their end of the deal and to make this happen, represent God to the world? Well, that's where those very famous Ten Commandments come in see so far in our reading, we've read a lot of directions and instructions from God and hate to break it to you. We're going to see many, many, many more. By some counts, there are more than 600 commands from God in the Old Testament. Okay, but these first 10 that come up in Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments, they're special. First of all, they're special because these are the only commands that God himself speaks to the people from Mount Sinai with his own voice. I mean, they actually hear God speak to them with these 10 things. The rest of the commands in Exodus and in the the books beyond, they all come uh, with Moses acting as a mediator between God and the people. But not the Ten Commandments. This is God speaking in his own voice. And not only that, but if you let me get nerdy for a second, the grammar in each of these commandments is really interesting and 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 kind of intense, honestly. Each of those you-must-not statements, I mean, if you're old school, thou shalt not, uh, those statements, you know, that make up the Ten Commandments, you shall not, you know, you must not steal, you must not lie, etc. Well, each of those statements are second person singular. In other words, each command is not spoken to the group, they're spoken to every individual member of the Israelite community at the mountain. So it's not, you know, to to bring in a little bit of my Texas past, okay? It's not y'all must not lie. It's Owen Do not lie. It's direct. It's personal. And that's a little bit intense. But another reason I think these commands are key is because in many ways, these commandments, these top 10 here, they form what we could call the guidelines for the good life. They set out in stark, simple detail the kind of life that God has created all human beings to live. It's the kind of life that was created by God for humanity back in Eden before Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit. If you want to know what life should be like, life the way God designed it, it's there at Eden. And here with the Israelites, God outlines exactly what that kind of life looks like. You get 10 simple commandments. And the first four are all in a grouping. They have to do with maintaining a good life with God. And the last six of the ten, they all have to do with living a good life with other people. And all the other commandments that follow, the 600 plus commandments to come, well, in many ways... They either give more guidance on how to live out those Ten Commandments or to show the path back to the good life with God and the community if someone finds themselves in a sticky situation where they miss the mark on following those Ten Commandments. So where does that leave us? Here's Here's the key question. That's all the setup, okay? So where does that leave us in relation to those Ten Commandments? For the Israelites, keeping these commandments as a community, not just one off here and there, the whole community, it was foundational to maintaining their covenant relationship with God. That's the Israelites. Now, what about most of us who are not Israelites? Okay, well, I got I to throw out a slight spoiler. I don't want to spoil the story too much, but there is a little something that's going to happen in our story. It's going to take us a little while to get there, but eventually we are going to be introduced to a character in the story named Jesus. And Jesus changes so much about how we as people establish and maintain a friendship with God. Like it's just a paradigm shift and that's not an overstatement. So it's worth ripping a page out of those later chapters in the story to explain what's going on here as we read this part of this Bible adventure. So in the very last month of our adventure together, we're going to come across a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. Okay, stick with me for a second. I'm going to set this up. Uh, all the work that we're putting in now in the Old Testament, getting it down with the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of that, it's going to pay off when we get to the New Testament, especially you get to parts like Hebrews. Uh, because the book of Hebrews is all about connecting the Old Testament and the New. It explains for us today our relationship between the covenant between God and the people of Israel and how it relates to us now that's what Hebrews does so I'm gonna pull a page right out of the middle of Hebrews and what's cool is because you've been reading along you're gonna understand this, and it's, it's not gonna be a mystery to you. It's, it's actually, I think it's gonna make some things click and fall into place for you. It's not very long, but you're gonna give me a minute because this section in Hebrews it perfectly answers the question: How does all this stuff about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the commandments all relate to us right now? It's Hebrews chapter eight and it starts like this here is the main point that's how the verse starts chapter eight verse one and i love that i like when they just hey let's bottom line this let's get to the main point here's the main point of the conversation in the book of hebrews and it connects to right where we are right now in our bible adventure here we go here is the main point we have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic god in heaven there he ministers in the heavenly temple the true place of worship that was built by the lord and not by human hands and since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifice our high priest must make an offering too if he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there already are priests who offer gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that's only a copy, a shadow, of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning, quote, Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain, end quote. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said... And here comes a big quote from Jeremiah in the Old Testament, later on from where we're reading now. Let me continue. He said, here's the quote, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turn my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them down on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone From the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. End quote. That's from the book of Jeremiah. Now, Hebrews continues when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete, it is now out of date. And will soon disappear. That's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. So, what's that mean for us as we read here in Exodus, Leviticus this week? Think of words like a copy, a shadow. That's what we see as we watch the Israelites construct that tabernacle in the wilderness. It's only a copy, it's only a shadow. But a copy can still show you something of the original and a shadow can still reveal something of the shape of the original. And so it it matters, It, it means something. It's a copy, it's a shadow, but it's important. But don't hang on too tightly to this old covenant we're reading about now because there's a day coming in our story When it will be made obsolete by the new. Those 10 commandments, yeah, they're still on the table. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he will tell us later, but to fulfill it. These guidelines for the good life, they're still on the table, but everyone who establishes a relationship with God through Jesus is not on the hook for them. They're on the table, (laughs) but we're not on the hook. They are simply a shadow of things to come. And there you have it, my friend. We're all set for another amazing week here in Word and the Wild in this one-year Bible adventure with friends. All you Word and the Wild Plus community members, I'll be seeing you in the wild this week. That's our private online community space. Everybody else, you don't have to be a stranger either. Subscribe to this podcast and follow Word and the Wild on Facebook and get into some interaction there. Word and the Wild is a Line House community. It's part of the Line House Community Network, a nonprofit organization with a mission to bring neighbors together to promote awareness, appreciation, and understanding of the Bible because friendship. And God's word change lives and change cities. Word and the Wild is presented by Lumavaz and the Lumavaz Podcast Network. Now with that, my friend, we are out. I'm Owen. I'm your host and your guide. And until next time, I'll be looking forward to seeing you out there on the trail in the word and the wild. Have a great week.